Welcome to the Holden Village Podcast. Holden is a community of education, programming, and worship located in the remote wilderness of the Cascade Mountains. These snapshots provide a glimpse into the learnings taking place in our community. Let's tune in to this week's highlight. I'm Anna Marie Vegan. I teach Christian social ethics at Loyola University Chicago. I'm the daughter of a Lutheran pastor and a nurse educator and have always been really connected to my Lutheran roots and tradition. I'm an active member of a Lutheran church in Chicago, Illinois. My area of focus is exploring racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic inequality in society, in health and healthcare, also as it relates to climate change. How is it that communities of color are contributing the least to climate change and yet uh, paying the highest prices and living on the front lines? But this week at Holden, with the theme Unity and Love, I've really been focusing specifically on white anti-racism work. Basically, my idea is that to get to unity and love, we white Christians have some work we really need to do and have been struggling with, avoiding, stuck. And I'm really trying to unpack a little bit more about what that work is and how we can move through it in some creative ways. And part of that, I tell my own story. I'm a woman who grew up in South Dakota in the 1970s who did not interact with any communities of any color until probably sixth grade when we moved to Chicago. Yet, well before second grade, I started to feel internal messages related to Native Americans that we were not on land that was ours or that had been stolen, that AIM uprisings happened. And my dad told me that the Indians were going to come and take our home. He didn't say it in a very constructive way. He kind of said it in a way that just left me fearful and confused. And also kind of, I think that's where the kernels of some shame and guilt already, again, before age 10. But I didn't have any context And I also didn't have any role models of what white people looked like who were good allies. I didn't know as I grew into adolescence and college if I just had to focus on being Norwegian and German-American and try to deny whiteness, if I could be a good ally. Or I think that's where a lot of us find ourselves. And a lot of us in those situations turn to being colorblind to saying, I treat everybody the same, and we're all equal, and we're all children of God. But that's a false kind of equality. It doesn't really get at the power imbalances, the way that there's structural discrimination, the way that some people's lives are just so much more vulnerable because of racial prejudice and discrimination. And so it doesn't work to be colorblind or to try to just treat people as the way you want to be treated. So in these sessions, I unpack a little bit about history and white Christianity's complicity with race and racism, particularly as it pertains to some of our history with Lakota tribes and uh, Cherokee and also with African Americans and how really Christianity since the 15th century was integral to justifying slavery and colonization. That's one session. And another session, we really explore much more stages of white identity and formation and how can we get out of this kind of ineffectual and icky white guilt and white shame into more creative and constructive modes of being and relating. And throughout the time together, I tell bits of my own story and narrative, including conversations that I've had with my son about his tow blonde hair, <laughs> his white blonde hair, and the way that he is received in society and the way that other people's colors and hair colors and eye colors are not always affirmed and what that does to self-esteem and things like that. And we look closely at some examples of structural inequality in health and health 
healthcare a little bit, but the main focus is to talk about housing and housing discrimination policies. But really, I want us to end and take away from these sessions not simply a review of the problems we face or the history that we have to confront, but throughout, I hope listeners or participants will gain access to tools and strategies where they can affect change in their own lives, communities, and spheres of influence. That's the last session we really focus on concrete strategies, and I ask people to think about commitments, concrete, specific commitments that they're willing to make, and we read a couple examples of things that help us get those ideas started, but I really ask people to think about their own communities and what kind of steps they can take to um, further the cause of both racial justice for the sake of people who are facing the brunt of it, who are kind of really at the bullseye of feeling these issues, you know, having to tackle them head on because their lives are on the line, but also for our own sake, for our own sake as white people, as white Christians, to help reform our own relationships and identities in ways that are life-giving, that are healing, that are constructive, so that we can feel comfortable in our own bodies and skin and can feel confident that we can relate to all kinds of others and work with them and so that we are trustworthy. You know, we can do this. And with some understanding and a lot of resources that I'll make available to hold it online, readings, podcasts, all kinds of things, videos, there's a lot we can do to continue to educate ourselves, but also some organizations we can connect with that can help us see the way forward. I think being an ally means, first of all, doing our own work, not asking community of color so much to educate us or to prove that racism is a thing. It's an ugly systemic thing. But to really, there are so many wonderful resources. And so I don't think it works to be only in white conversations, but I think a piece of it is to have, whether it's book clubs or church adult ed groups or neighborhood groups, to do some hard reflection together and honest reflection together and learn more about our own social locations and histories. So that's part of it. Another piece is being humble and a very good listener and just willing to become more comfortable with being uncomfortable. So when things happen in the news or down the block, when we hear people of color be really frustrated with white folks, to not focus so much on how we feel uncomfortable or our feelings are hurt or, you know, kind of take the focus away from us and our feelings and our needs for validation or reassurance that we're likable or whatever it is, and just really be willing to take in what is being said the testimony, the witness, and let it sink in, be slow to speak, more reflection, more listening. And then I think the critical thing is to not get stuck in a sense of, again, guilt and shame. That doesn't do anyone any good, but really work to take responsibility, to find ways, pragmatic, concrete, specific strategies that we can build relationships. So there are organizations like Surge. There are organizations like Racial Equity. There's organizations focusing on racial equity in schools or healthcare or criminal justice. Brian Stevenson's work, of course, is so wonderful. But we can plug in where we feel called, school, church, workplace, neighborhood, around policing, around immigration, around the Dakota pipelines, or around indigenous people's rights, and start taking action. So it really cannot stop with simply reading and reflection and talking. But there's really, we need to start placing our bodies and our energies in concrete relationships and projects as we are feeling able. While we identify as white, we don't have to say that we are hopelessly complicit or racist forever, you know, and then 
just hate ourselves or hide. By everyday decisions that we make, everyday strategies, we can choose certain paths and directions over against others. And it's going to be different for all kinds of different people. For some, it's just a huge step to actually interrupt a racial joke at a family table in a way that, again, isn't shaming, but is saying, hey, you know what, that's actually not okay. Or interrupting other kinds of actions that are acting out of assumptions. I'm not going to cross the street anymore when I see darker-skinned folks approaching me, or I'm not going to avert my eyes. I'm actually going to greet people more. You know, there's those kinds of steps. We don't even realize how we carry some of this stuff in our bodies, especially when we live very segregated lives, and all of a sudden we're in a multiracial environment, and we don't know what to do. I think there's also things we can do around checking our assumptions. So in healthcare, in policing, in social and human services, in education, a million times a day, we are given the opportunity of sizing people up. Students, colleagues, patients, suspects, or people that we think may be doing suspicious behavior. And if we can start to do some white anti-racism trainings that help us slow down, and a lot of communities are offering these trainings, and learn how to question our assumptions, take a minute, pause, not simply act out of unconscious bias that we don't even know we have, and check to make sure if our reading of the situation in person aligns with who this person really is and what's really going on, that is huge. If we can learn to ask more questions and get to know individuals rather than so quickly applying stereotypes to individuals in an uncritical way. And that is so relevant for so many professions. I think another strategy, and this is, I really am speaking now as a white parent, I assumed my kid had to have the best school when he was four and five, you know, if possible. But I had no really idea that how I was defining the best school meant access to resources that were going to put him in a much wider school and that I wasn't valuing the kinds of excellence that comes when you, from the get-go, really raise your children in interracial environments and intercultural environments. And so I think a lot of times white folks flee to the suburbs. And in my case, we live in Chicago. We didn't, but he tested into a school that is predominantly white and has a lot of money for extracurricular programs, a lot more resources. But the cost to his education is that he doesn't have as many friends of color. And we have to do more to supplement that. So I think a lot of times people with economic means, white people with economic means, choose to really protect, quote unquote, protect their children, take them to places that are pretty segregated and pretty affluent if they can. And and I actually think that does our children a disservice. So it's always, again, what's going on in the school system, what's going on in the neighborhood, what kind of churches are available and open to us, you know, visit a few, don't just go for the default and just really think, how do we define excellence and how do we define high quality education or high quality experiences for our children and bring into consideration where we place our children, our bodies, our time, our energies, what kinds of things we volunteer with on a monthly basis. Hopefully everybody can find a little bit of time to volunteer in their year and their month. So really think more strategically and thoughtfully or proactively about what kind of organizations they want to be a part of and also how we show up in those spaces. If we're doing that critical self-reflection piece that I mentioned, doing our own homework, thinking more about our own social location, we'll show up in ways that will be more helpful 
and that will lead to better relationships and trust building. It's never going to be perfect. It's an ongoing journey. So I think I want to just say to people, don't hold yourself to some kind of perfectionist standard. It's not like it's a linear progression and now I'm going to be a perfect white person. I still fumble. I still make mistakes. I still probably hurt people's feelings, but we can recover and our whole identity doesn't have to be crushed by those mistakes. We can get some perspective and just like practicing the piano or the violin, we just stay engaged and keep practicing and and stay authentic and grounded. So don't worry about messing up. Your heart matters and the intentionality that you bring to it really does. But none of this will happen if people don't make commitments that are concrete and put some real oomph, some real intentionality behind it. Reading books, watching documentaries, having safe conversations, if that's where we stop with the people that we most know, then we really will not be able to help much in the cause for racial justice. And right now it's all hands on deck. There's a place for everybody. We all need to be part of this work for the sake of our world, for the sake of our relationships, and for the sake of our own moral formation. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information, or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.